0: Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are broadcasting today via remote access so that in light of the COVID crisis, we can maintain our social distancing and still bring you today's show. Please be patient if we experience technical glitches. We hope that everyone listening is safe and healthy during and doing what they can to protect themselves and our communities. Wealth Matters is presented to you today by Gassowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gasowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts are Robert Port and Craig Frankel.
1: And today our topic is investing for the long term. Pleased to have with us today, David Vivikoff, financial advisor, Uh, Tell our audience a little bit about your background and what your current uh, financial advisory practice uh, entails. So
2: uh, thanks for having us on. I grew up in a uh, family-owned business, totally unrelated to this, it was a trade in which I learned the value of hard work, and I also saw how uh, my dad had good advisors around him, but I would say his exit plan from the business was less than perfect. Um, So there was a lot to be learned there. I left the business uh, earlier on, I had a degree in finance and MBA, did a short stint as a stockbroker, realized that uh, clients were not achieving their objectives just by following that advice, picked up a lot of tools and really became a full service advisor. And for the last 25 years, I've been educating, empowering and coaching corporate executives, business owners, financial professionals, entrepreneurs uh, with a planning process that I like to refer to as macroeconomic in nature.
1: Fred, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Basically, grew up in New
3: York City, did a stint in the military, uh, in the Air Force as a photographer, and a good friend of mine's wife uh, recruited me to the financial world 34 years ago in 1987 in Los Angeles. And uh, it's been a great journey ever since. Family of five and um, living here in South Florida and uh met david about 12 years ago we connected and we are perfectly aligned in our long-term goals and objectives with our clients
0: let's just jump in i've heard both of you now three times say the word objectives so let's just start off there how does somebody figure out what their objectives should be i think that's
2: planning? a great david, question you and um I think the best way is really by having a skillful person ask the right questions either of themselves or have a skillful person ask the questions of the individual to uncover what their real objectives are on a very high level. Like what is their purpose? You know, what drives them, what motivates them? What is and and start at a really, really high level. Because honestly, on a financial level. I will assert that everybody has the same underlying number one objective, which is they want to be okay, they want to have confidence around having sufficient cash flow so that they can live their current lifestyle and or better for as long as they live, them and their their spouse, as long as they're alive, they can achieve those objectives with with confidence.
0: And And they don't want to pay
2: taxes. Well, you know what? Nobody wants to pay taxes, but taxes should not be driving that conversation. It should be, do we have the ability to fulfill on our lifestyle in the the fashion that we want? And can we do that forever? That should be the overarching objective. Every other objective
1: is secondary to that, including taxes. David, that, that's excellent. I think giving an overview like that is, is what a lot of folks need. But let me, let me deal with, with a, a related issue, which is my sense is a lot of people think this is terribly complicated. I don't have the money to do this. Financial planning is for wealthy people. I'll do it later. I've got kids to you know, put through college. How do you deal with those um roadblocks whether whether real or imagined? You, either of you can take that. Brad?
3: Yeah, we we basically just start conversation with a conversation and it becomes an ongoing conversation. Listen, the subject of money is very scary for most. It is the most emotionally charged thing and who do you trust? And um you know, there's a lot of scarcity mentality. I'm I don't have enough or who do, you know, just all those questions. So David and I have, uh, are pretty skillful in just op- trying to get them to open up and, and share. And that's, that's pretty much my strong suit and connecting. And it has to be that way where that people have to be open to share and, and be vulnerable.
0: How do you get there? Because if you ask me, it's kind of like, what kind of art do you like? My answers are going to really be kind of weak. So if you ask me what lifestyle I like, I'm going to struggle to say more than David. I want to have enough money to do everything I want, and I don't want to worry about it. But I really couldn't tell you what lifestyle I want, and it's changed over time. Now that I am so old, um, and those who can see me in a picture can see it, I, my, my, my views have changed, but I'm not sure I could answer the question what lifestyle I want many times in my life.
2: Craig, if I, if I can, um, I never really said, what kind of lifestyle do you want? Okay. The client, the, the individual is already living a lifestyle. Okay. And the, their number one concern is, can I maintain this? And can I grow from here? But coming back to the original question, the original question was, had more to do with, let's call it the, the, the fear around planning or am I too early or am I too late or do I have enough? And, and what I'm going to say to you is kind of where I started. it. It's about purpose. It's about a vision of where somebody wants to go. It's not about the day-to-day minutia of the budget and the numbers. It's really what in life fulfills them, okay? It's, it's got to start with, with those kinds of things, first and foremost, because those are the motivators. And if somebody really, really wants something, they're going to do everything they can to achieve it in life. And it's like we hear from people, I don't have the time for something. The reality is we all have time. We all have equal amounts of time.
0: You're <laughs> criticizing my not working out enough. I just never have enough time.
2: Yeah, exa- exactly. That, it, it, that could be one of those things. However, if your child or grandchild was going to be the starting pitcher in the championship game or be the star of the school play, You'll be there even if it was at 11 a.m. on Thursday this week and you had an appointment. You find a way to be there because it was more powerful to you, more purposeful. And that's really where it starts for getting people, let's say, to the table or to start looking at this. And I will put out to you, I'll, I'll assert that many people have a fear of planning in general for a whole host of reasons. They think it's going to be painful they think it's going to be demoralizing. It's going to make them feel inadequate or stupid, or they're going to have to give up control. They're going to look bad. And the reality is it's about getting really clear about where you are and being really clear of those things. Like, where do you want to be? And I'm not talking nuts first. I'm talking what drives you? Yeah. And then where are you in relation to that? What have you tried to get there? And what may be out there for you, what may you not have tried that can help you achieve what you achieve sooner and safer? So right. it should be an inspiring type exercise, if you will, as
1: opposed to demoralizing.
3: Yeah. And, and being open to discover the possibilities. Just being open. Let's find out.
1: To your point, David, I I, I had uh, someone once remark to me that that they resisted, uh, you know, the type of uh, advice you're providing, because they were concerned about being hectored, you know, you shouldn't go to Starbucks too often, you're getting your nails done too often, What, whatever it is. So help us understand. And, and we, we don't we don't have as much time as I know you devote. But can you give uh, a, an example of if, if I were to make an appointment with with either of you? Walk us very quickly through the type of information you'd want early on. Is, is there a questionnaire? Is it just sort of sit down and let's get to know each other? As you say, understand your objectives, get a sense of how you feel about money. And, and I know none of this is, is written in stone, but give us a sense of how that goes.
2: It really starts, I like the initial conversations to be as loose as possible. I prefer not having the numbers, not having the balance sheet, not asking for a questionnaire in fact you know this is something that you know fred does a really good job at he's kind of the most of the time the entree point to to advisory planning type questions because he meets people and he has, he has genuine conversations he listens really well so he he doesn't come in with an agenda
0: okay fred uh, we're we're coming into you and you 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 got us to sit down Start that conversation.
3: Why did you take this meeting, Craig?
0: I'm worried about the future. I mean, how do how do you get them to actually say what they want? and get Right. Them going? So
3: it's really interesting because I really go from the gut, and every situation's different, and it really depends on who I'm sitting with. What I try to do is just engage somebody first. It's it's a lot of schmoozing, catching up, because most of the time I have some kind of relationship or I know somebody who knows somebody, and that's what it is. It's just I, I we have I have to connect with the people. And then I have to then ultimately stay open to finding out what's possible. Uh, they're probably with, you know, they've gotten to the stage that they're at. They're usually successful there. I'm sure they've probably been through two or three different advisors. So it's really about are they open to seeing what's possible beyond that, uh, you know, and then it's either going to be they're open or not.
1: Sort of walk us through the, the stages of of where where you go. I at some point in time you'll have to understand, as David said, the balance right. sheet 401ks and IRAs and what their needs are over the next five, 10 years, kids going to college and whatnot. Sort of walk walk us through how you how you then sort of understand that phase, those phases.
2: There's really four four areas where we need to delve. Okay. And in general, it always begins with cash flow and it always ends with cash flow. So initially, you know, you talked about ask, finding out the client needs. I will tell you that most individuals that walk in, no matter how sophisticated and, and smart they are, if I ask them what it takes for them to live their life, they're going to underestimate that number quite often in the area of 25%. Uh, as an underestimation. And so it's important to understand the inflows, you know, what comes into their life in terms of income, how much do they save and more importantly what it costs to live their life. So that's always the starting point. Now from there, you know, more than likely we're going to have to have conversations about investments. We're going to have to have them understand the difference between speculating and gambling and prudent investment because there's a there's a distinction there that needs to be made. And they need to choose a philosophy around investments because if you don't have a philosophy, when the winds change a little bit, your feelings, thoughts, emotions kick in. You change, you, you abandon ships. So you got to be grounded in a philosophy so you're rooted and could can, and can, and can really weather a storm. So we start with cash flow. We talk about you know, h- how do you have an investment philosophy and, and how do you build confidence there? And then an area that's neglected also is is about wealth protection. How do you protect your wealth? Insurance, legal documents, uh, titling of assets, things things like that are crucial because you don't get a do-over in life. You have what we refer to as one compound interest curve. If you are forced to get off of it because a lawsuit wreaks havoc on your life or you can no longer work because you're sick or injured, disabled... Um, you know, you can't create the life that you wanted for yourself. So you have to have a wealth protection plan also. And lastly, we want to have a conversation about what we refer to as your future life or realization. Like, ultimately, it's not about having millions in the bank. It's about what kind of income can you potentially create from whatever you've amassed over time. So we want to be able to time travel with the client, give them an understanding of since we know what it takes for you to live now, we could assume some, in- based on how you invest, with some reasonable assumptions, based on the amount of wealth you're gonna create for yourself, this is the income level that you're, you're, you're heading, that's the trajectory you're heading for, for income. And then, so they get a, a real dose of reality, and we don't wanna just leave them there, then it becomes, okay, what could be done? And then we go to the laboratory with them, and together we try
1: different things. So, so that we can help them achieve what they want to achieve. Yeah, your, your discussion about having an actual plan reminds me of what I think is a military saying, which is hope is not a strategy. We're talking today with David Bibikoff, financial advisor with Strategies for Wealth, and Fred Kettler, founder, Kettler Financial. Our topic today is investing for the long term, what you need to know. So you said,
0: uh, David, you you try to explain to your clients what's the difference between gambling and investing and speculating and giving them the tools of the types of things that they can invest in that that would be helpful. So let's ask two questions, and either one of you can take it. The first is, what is the difference between gambling and speculating? And the second question is, let's talk about what some of those tools are, the types of investments that a family could consider that they may not really think about.
2: I would say the vast majority of investors are really speculating and gambling. I'm going to assert that to start. And they fall into what I call the prediction syndrome. They are, everything they're doing is about trying to predict the future. Like they have greater information about what's going to come, whether it's to the overall economy, whether it's to a particular Or stock, whether it's to a particular sector of the market. They're trying to guess. And I will assert that, you know, the free market hypothesis basically says all the known knowledge and information that's out there in the universe is already baked into the price of every situation in the market in an efficient market. And that the only thing that's going to move and change where things are going in the future is unknown situations, unknown news, unknown variables. And you could just think back to last year, the market was doing just fine until COVID, it was roaring ahead. And then nobody would have predicted what happened. Nobody saw that that happening and poof, your portfolio was down 30% more than likely overnight. So instead of trying to outguess the market, You know, the average individual doesn't even capture market returns. And market returns are there and they're available. However, the human behavior around it is what's going to dictate what ultimately happens. And behavior really, really matters. So speculating and gambling is about us doing something, us being active, trading, changing our situation as the winds blow, And the truth is, investing should be more like watching paint dry. Choose an allocation that's thoroughly diversified, that fits your risk tolerance, and let it happen, because long-term, the markets will appreciate. Fred and I tell our clients, we don't know where the next 20% in the market's going, up or down, but we do know where the next
1: 100% is going to be,
2: and it's going to come over a long period of time, and that's up.
1: Yeah, I'm... 100% 100% uh, in agreement with her. And the way I often think about this is if, if you ask somebody generally, you know, the, the soothsayer predicting the future, they'll say, ah, no, nah. but, you know, you turn on the financial networks and whatnot and buy this, sell this, inflation, that this is going up and this is going down. And and for me, I think perhaps a simplistic way of thinking about it is I think on pure probability terms, you've got a 50-50 chance of getting it right. It's a coin toss. So why, particularly with invest in, investments and, and your thoughts about protecting your future, why are you just you know, sort of rolling the dice, betting that something's going to go up or down? So I'm, I'm, I'm all in on everything you just said. Fred, you used the phrase, explaining to your client, what are
0: the possibilities? And David kind of mentioned that. So, so don't gamble, have an allocation such that you can't predict the 20%, but you know the 100%. Tell us, what are the possibilities? What are the types of investments that, that families can consider that will not only reduce the risk, but give them a, a nice opportunity to watch the pain dry?
3: The investment piece is about broad, very highly broadly diversified, globally investing, not just in the largest 500 U.S. companies, but all over the world, thousands of companies as broadly as possible, because we don't know when... when next asset class performer is going to be you just really want to own everything you want to have somebody behind the scenes rebalancing actually doing what humans don't do instead of chasing the thing that's going up they're actually going to sell something that's higher and buy the thing that's underperforming because they know over time that asset class is going to come in so broadly diversified on the on the long-term investment
0: and when you talk about diversified right now, you seem to be talking primarily stocks and bonds. Yeah, equi- and right,
3: right. In, the, in, the, in the equities right, in the equities world. What, what, um,
0: what, what, give us a little more. What's beyond the equity? Right. Because a lot of people think equities are the only thing you can invest in. And it seems to me there may be more.
3: Right. So, so what we also know to be true is that uh, it's quite inefficient to be arriving at retirement with only investments. OK, you've probably heard of the safe withdrawal rate, Monte Carlo simulation, right? And most Wall Street people are not taking their clients to that. Everybody's trying to chase rates of return and get you to a bigger number. But the question is, what is that number going to do? How are you going to convert that money into income later? How does that work? And why isn't anybody going there? Uh, Because it's inefficient. And so the advisor wants to keep your money as long as possible. And then when you get there, they want to give it back to you as slowly as possible. And they want to keep it under the management. That's my perspective of the why Complementary. David and I have also been well versed for the last my case, 34 years, his case close to 30 in the area of what we call actuarial science, which is the world of insurance that the world of guarantees and products that only insurance companies can uh, provide. OK, and most of the time, one of the two people are showing up. It's either going to be the wealth manager or the insurance guy who's selling life insurance annuities or long-term care, very one-dimensional product situation. We've learned, and I've learned through David, and, and that's what the big why I, I got uh, involved with David is because he was very very well-versed in this uh, marrying of the two, if you will, but basically we create much more efficiency and leverage when we integrate certain products in the, from the insurance world along with the investment world. So it's not an either or, it's an and, you know, and what that does is it creates leverage and it gives you the ability to spend and enjoy more when you get there to retirement by having both on the balance sheet for many reasons. So we 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 do get into the subject of actuarial science and and having more efficiency by having insurance on the balance sheet as well.
1: And you give our listeners some uh, some specific examples or or situations in which insurance which is not often viewed as an investment by, by lay people can, can be a component of the sort of global uh, approach you're taking to make sure you know, future objectives are reached.
2: Let's keep it real simplistic for a second. And let's just put it this way. What you don't want to happen to your investment plan, any stage, especially later in life, is you don't want to have to disrupt it at the wrong time meaning the market just went down. We know it's a blip. We know it's short-term. We've been in this a long-term. We don't want to panic. We want it to rebound. And life just hit us with something. And we need capital. We just need capital for something in our life that is a temporary situation. Having a bucket of money uncorrelated to the stock market that's available to utilize because there are let's say insurance products out there that do that could significantly improve your wealth picture because you don't have to disrupt the market at the wrong time you know we show this to people stepping off into retirement people in retirement when they have that alternative bucket the difference the client may take what they need typically on an annual basis pull it out of their investments and put it into their bank so they can live the life over the next year but if the market just went down 25%, if you have an alternative bucket to go to, it allows your investment portfolio the opportunity to bounce back. When you're in retirement and you're taking withdrawals out of an account and the market gets hit hard, you can kill off your portfolio pretty quickly because you're taking withdrawal in a down market. So we, we show people the opportunity created by having an alternative bucket like monies and insurance especially those that are guaranteed to increase on on a regular basis, not tied to the stock market, not correlated that way. And then when the market comes back, they're free to do what they want. They can replenish the insurance bucket or not. They could begin taking withdrawals from their investment account again, and life goes on.
1: So that's that's like the simplest version of that that I would provide for you. That carries forward to not uh, your commentary before about not chasing returns you you've allocated across a, a range of investment options that tend to smooth out the ups and downs in the market um you know what many people don't realize i may not have this number correct but my recollection is that the s p as a as a statistical matter uh, has some reasonable probability of going down. Is it 20% or more annually? Just, just as a statistical matter. It may be five years and it doesn't happen. It may go down, you know, 50% like happened in, in 08. But the idea that I, I think a lot of folks have trouble grasping is you can you can mollify those big ups and downs by the types of alternative allocations and investments and insurance products you have to to provide some backstop so you're not in a panic and have to deplete your your investments to to, to get cash flow to live on. Yeah, and
2: and I would put out to you that
1: a lot of people
2: feel that their portfolios are thoroughly diversified because they have either lots of mutual funds or lots of stocks, and they pretty much resemble the S&P 500 and, you know, from the decade of 2000 to 2010, the S&P 500 didn't make money for an entire decade. People tend to forget. We have short memories. A couple of years with, with some ups, but overall, you know, it started with, with a loss, some significant losses. Then it had a, the, the financial crisis, huge loss. And by the end of the decade, you know, your $1 that you started with the beginning of the decade was worth like 91 cents. The end of the decade
0: in our practice we deal with a lot of disputes with families that have and one of the big disputes we're always getting is all of the family's investment was in the business and the money they took out of the business was was, was really spent on life you know the house the repairs whatever so when we talk about trying to ensure or or, or increase other options how do you talk to a family where, where if the business fails, their entire investment fails. But if they don't have other investments, then they're unsafe. How do you balance the, the business? And and by the way, in the Southeast, at least, a lot of people's businesses are tied to real estate.
2: The first thing is that a lot of those business people don't come to the table and have conversations with professionals. And the reason why is the belief in many of those cases is they're going to tell me that they can do better than me by investing money. The truth is for a business owner, their best rate of return is their business. However, they typically haven't spent time thinking about the contingencies for the what ifs regarding their business. So they don't know what's possible. Like where where do I park my money while I'm working on my business in the good years so that it's available for opportunity or for emergency To help my business grow in the future. And quite often, insurance products could be quite, quite helpful for that, as well as helping people understand that yes, you have a personal balance, you have a business balance sheet, but you also have a personal balance sheet. And it would probably be prudent to start building your personal balance sheet to some extent, not correlated to the business, also, maybe in the investment world. But we come in with the vantage point, we understand the best rate of return is gonna be the client's business we don't want to fight them on that because I would hope it is, it should be.
0: So let's use that as a, as, a, as a transition. The other problem we have is what you described with your father, that it's very hard to figure out how to transition the business. And one of the big issues is, is to how to fund either people who aren't going to be involved or family members who aren't going to be part of the business or perhaps the next generation within the business what are some of the opportunities to help that business transition when you're doing your own financial planning?
2: The better question is not to focus on the solutions. I think the better questions should focus on the problems.
0: And and so so give me an example of focusing on the problems.
2: Well, I'm going to ask you, Craig, you've got a lot of experience. What, what have you seen happen on a negative sense with business owners that fail to plan for the what-ifs, or the transitions, or the exit plan. What how much uh, time do you yeah, have? How yeah, much so, time so, so, but, but share some of the best, let's call it the best of. I'll start the worst of, not knowing who
0: should take over. Um, the next generation thinking they're entitled to the same return the first generation is getting, forgetting that they invested a lot of time and money and sweat to get there. And one of the real biggest problems is sibling rivalry being involved in the business or not being involved in the business being the right person to manage it or not and the issue that i was getting at really is to talk about the options how do you fund the alternatives is where we see no one has funded it insurance can be used savings can be used but you almost have to figure out for us where we where we see the problems and the disputes somebody feels that they have either not been adequately provided for And then I have in the back of my mind something that always is true, 80% of virtually all family businesses will fail in the next generation. And so failing to to be realistic that it's not going to continue the same. Those are the problems we see, but we're seeing them largely once they
1: fail.
2: Yes, and so what I'm getting at is when somebody clearly understands the problems and owns the problems, they will be invested in solutions.
0: Maybe we shouldn't call them problems. Maybe we should call them challenges.
2: Challenges, concerns. You know, what I would say to you is when they understand that, that those things are possible and they have real impact, then they are ready, willing, and open to investigate solutions until they truly understand and own those challenges, if you will they will find fault in all the solutions. Like we don't have the cash flow for that. Or if we did that, uh, Mary is not gonna be happy. Um, Or Bob won't be happy. So they're gonna find the problems in the solutions because they truly don't embrace the problems, the challenges.
3: And this is all if if they're open at all to really facing the situation because human beings don't like to face stuff and ignore a lot of stuff.
0: So oh, yeah. it's hard sticking your head in the sand is normal. So here's a great opportunity, Fred. David just told me that you really can't talk solutions till you know the challenges. Tell me if you can a success story where you were able to talk to a business owner about transition and, and you were able to succeed because they were open to discussing the challenges. Don't use names.
3: Let me, let me do de- defer to David on this one uh, regarding the uh, a business. Oh, owner
2: and in fact, Fred's probably going to end up chiming in. So there was a client that walked in in about 2012, husband and wife. Client was a, about a 15% owner in a business, a very successful business. He, he was coming to the table at the age of roughly 55. And he was coming to the table basically saying, look, I've had investable money with you know, one of the major wirehouses out there. And I just want a second set of eyes at this point in life.
3: But they, he wasn't happy. He wasn't happy.
2: He wasn't happy about his investments. We looked at his investments, but we expanded the conversation drastically. And I asked about the business. I asked about the business agreements with the majority partner. I asked about his share and his share of the business was valued at about $10 million. And I asked him about the, the, um, the agreements. And what we came to understand that the relationship between the partners was less than optimal. You might call it dysfunctional. That's probably what I did. And basically at this point in life, he had educated his kids, he had paid off the mortgage, and he'd been through life, but his personal balance sheet, it was not that it was not that um robust outside of the business. The wealth in the balance sheet was really the business. So I asked him about the the reality of what's the possibility of really monetizing that with your relationship with your partner? And he said, I don't know. I really have to save money over the next 10, 15 years. I said, exactly. And I said, what happens if you don't make it over the next 10, 15 years? Get hit by a bus. And he said, yeah, I doubt my spouse would be able to get, we have an agreement, but my spouse is not going to be able to get the kind of money this business is worth. So, the simple solution was, well, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, let's at least make sure you have adequate life insurance to recognize the value of the business so that your spouse can live the life that you dreamed of together as best as possible if you aren't there. Um, so that was part of what we did. We did a lot of things in the protection area. And we we set up a savings plan. We had them save, saving money systematically for the first time in years, uh, huge chunks. So we did a lot with the client. and approximately four months after the insurance goes in place fred gets a call from the client said to fred what he said to you fred
3: yeah i'll never forget i was in my backyard i got a phone call he goes fred that that life insurance he goes i'm covered right and i go yeah yeah what's up what's up anyway he had uh, been diagnosed with um, lung cancer not from smoking some genetic thing and yeah and he he had a five-year battle after that he passed away at age sixty.
2: And, and to fast forward, we get to the end of the story. Financially speaking, financially speaking, the spouse, is o- the spouse is okay. She's able to fund her life. She's able to help out her kids to the extent that she wants, and move on. The money from his share of the business, there has been zero. You know, at this point, she's given up on that fight. It's not worth the aggravation, based on what the partners would do. Partner did to basically, you know shrink the value or create the illusion of a shrunken value of the company and inadequate agreements. The attorneys, you know, we're going to get all the fees and the clients and you know what, I'm fine.
3: The bottom line is she's financially okay. It's really sad about the loss of a spouse, especially how close they were. Um, But then David and I continued to do planning with her and this woman's going to be fine for the rest of her life.
1: That was excellent for both of you, and I, I hope we've left our listeners with some thoughts about, um, you know, the importance of of focusing on this, of having a long term plan, and particularly not not procrastinating. Sometimes these are difficult issues, but as your last story illustrated, it's really really important to plan, and and in particular not leave your lo- loved ones in, in a lurch. As we're closing, I. Uh, like each of you to uh, tell our listeners a little bit uh, about where they may reach you if they'd like to get further information from you uh website phone email
3: yeah i'd love to you know invite anyone to a, an initial conversation that's where it all begins if you want to just chat we're open david and i are open we'd love to uh see if we can how we can add value to your world my website is uh, com. it's k-e-t-t-l-e-r financial, one word, dot com. My phone number is uh, listed, I think, right on the top there. And uh, that'd be a great way to get a hold of us.
2: And David? By phone, 914-288-8924 is the old-fashioned way that works. Uh, by email, dbibikov. that's D like David, B like boy, I, B like boy, I, C-O, F like Frank, F like Frank, dbibikov at strategies for, spelled F-O-R, wealth.
0: So, so Fred, you had mentioned when you talk about financing and what you should be thinking about, it's a marriage of ideas, and I couldn't help but think in my head that it's polygamy. It's more than one marriage, but uh, so that's a colorful way of thinking about it, but to me, it's saying think a lot about outside of an individual world, so I want to, as we end the show, thank both of you for being here, helping us understand that really talking about family finances is more than the numbers. It's actually talking about family goals. So here at Wealth Matters, we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving wealth. For more information about Gaswitch frankel please go to our website at gaswitchfrankel.com, And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag, Wealth Matters.